Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, found on page 975 in the Black Bibles around you. Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18 will be our final time looking at the book of Galatians, finishing this sermon series. And as we do so, I would like to tell you a story, a story that leads to what we will celebrate, for those of you who care anything about church history and the Protestant Reformation, October 31st is not Halloween only, although many people will celebrate Halloween here in the United States. October 31st, all around the world, will be a day of celebration and remembrance for Protestant Christians. So those would be Christians who would see themselves as protesting against some abuses and theology of the Catholic Church that many people would put the starting date October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago, this coming Tuesday. What I'd like to tell you is a story that happened 100 years before October 31st, 1517, to show you that the Reformation and the ideas behind it were not new with Martin Luther. But in fact, they were around anytime somebody had the Bible and was looking at the Bible and saying, here's what the Bible taught. So let me introduce you to a man named John Huss. His name is John Huss the Goose. The reason he's named John Huss the Goose is because in Czech, which is his home language, Huss literally means goose. My name, Philip, means lover of horses. I don't know which is better, goose or lover of horses. I'm not much a lover of horses, but my name is still Philip. And there we go. Born in 1372 in Bohemia near Prague, which would be in Czech today, uh, this man, John Huss, the goose, was born, and he would sign his name the Huss, simply being the goose. The goose was influenced heavily by a, a man named John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was a professor at Oxford in England who wanted to get the Bible in as many hands as he possibly could. So he had students of his, as he was a professor in Oxford, he had his students hand copy the Bible, and this would take many months to get the projects done. And after it was done, they would distribute the Bibles out and let people read them. However, some people didn't want the Bible to be read in the English language over there in Oxford, England. So they would burn the Bibles, and this created all kinds of controversy about whether or not the people in the everyday language, everyday common person should be able to own a Bible and read it. And John Wycliffe was obviously somebody who thought, yes, the Bible should be read and understood by anybody in their own normal language. Now you need to realize at this time, the Bible was not understood and known in your normal everyday language. Latin was the primary way people heard the Bible. And so by a show of hands, let me see. How many of you know Latin by heart, know it fully? We got one. So one of you, if we were to preach the sermon and read the scriptures all in Latin, only James would know what was being said. And the rest of you would just go through religious rituals and you'd be like, all right, we got church done for the day. And I I would imagine many of you would be like, that wouldn't be so helpful or useful to me. So imagine yourself in that context where only the elite and only the Latin knowers and speakers would be able to understand sermons and the scriptures. Well, John Huss was a pastor of a big church in Prague, Bethlehem Chapel, actually 
uh, about 3,000 people in, in this church in Prague. And some students from Oxford who got the Bible in their own language and started hearing teaching from John Wycliffe, they went and told John Huss these new truths that they had kind of rediscovered when they started reading the Bible. Truths like the Bible alone should be the sole authority and not the Pope. Or truths like salvation is only in grace and not by our works. Truths like every single Christian has the Holy Spirit in them and therefore all Christians are priests. There is not this hierarchy between priests and everyday church people. So when you see me on stage, you should see me as another Christian who's just gifted in teaching, hopefully some gifts in teaching, right? And you all also equally saints, equally priests, no divisions. So John Huss would teach some of these things that he got from John Wycliffe in Prague, and thousands and thousands of people were in this Bethlehem chapel, this 3,000-seat auditorium, and they were hearing it, and they were loving it, and they were embracing it with all of their hearts. So for two years, he was uh, asked to leave Prague because there were people who did not like this teaching, and there was all kinds of controversy around John Huss and John Wycliffe in their teaching, and eventually he was asked to come to Germany, John Huss that is, and defend the teaching that he had been preaching in his church and the books that he had been writing. He had written two different books during this two-year stint of being hidden away in a castle. And the Council of Constance, which was the Catholic Council, they said that Huss needed to defend whether they were true teachings from Scripture or not. And then they didn't really give him a chance to do that. Instead, they just threw him in prison. He got sick and he didn't really sleep. And then eventually they told him he was going to die. And that's really the story of John Huss. Now the reason I tell you that story is because the council said uh, to the council, John Huss, before he dies, he says, I would not for an entire chapel full of gold recede from the truths, rather I will gladly die for them. Is that, is that boldness? Is that confidence that what you believe, like you're willing to live and die for it? And why I want to tell you that story is because these men heard these words and they didn't change their mind. They painted on his head demons with a crown and we said, we commit your hands now to the devil. And he said, oh, I commit my hands to God. And on the way to his death, as he saw a pile of his books and writing burning before him, he was led to the place where they would eventually execute him. He knelt down and prayed and they said, we'll give you one last chance. One last chance to recant all that you taught, all that you wrote. And he said this. God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never thought nor preached except with one intention. And that is of winning men's souls, if possible, winning them from their sins. So today, I will gladly die. Those were the last words of John Huss as the fire was lit and the flames were engulfed around him. He sang a song, a chant, Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy upon me. And he slowly died to his death. One of his friends believed to have heard John Huss say shortly before his death, knowing that he was going to die when he went to Germany and that many people were opposing him for teaching the Bible, he told his friend, you can cook this goose, but in a hundred years, a swan will arrive. And 102 years later, a man named Martin Luther nailed to a Wittenberg door in Germany the 95 Theses, 
which is what many people are going to celebrate this coming Tuesday, as the start of the Reformation. But my friends, this Reformation did not start 500 years ago. This idea about being centered around the Bible was not new to Martin Luther. In fact, it was John Huss and John Wycliffe and many, many others before him that have been faithfully saying, I will live and die for this word. And that's what the Reformation, as we look this Tuesday and remember Martin Luther, that's what these men and women who gave their lives with these words, I will gladly die for these truths. They died it with it on their lips. And I'm asking you, do you think you could live with it on your heart? Could you live with those words and those ideas on your heart today? How can you have confidence right now in your living, not just in your dying, but in your living? Have you thought about this? Why do you wake up every morning? What's the passion of your life? Why do you exist? Do you have reasons to these big questions? You have answers. How do you confidently face your obstacles day in and day out? Not just the greatest obstacle, death. How do you face any obstacles, whether it's chronic pain or illness? Whether it is habitual or addictive sins that you feel as if you can't ever get over? Or how about relationships in the home or at work? Friends or family members that you can't get along with. On and on we could go. How do you wake up and face the obstacles that are before you day after day? What is your confidence? What is your hope? I believe in our last and final passage in our series of Galatians, we will see the answer to that question, at least for Paul, the man who's writing this letter and handwriting it, as we'll see in verse 11. So turn with me to verse 11. I'm going to read verses 11 through 18, the last section of this book, this letter to the Galatian churches. See in verse 11 that he picks up the pen, literally, He picks up the pen as he was most likely dictating these words to somebody who was like a secretary, writing them all down for him. And in verse 11, he says, Now see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised Do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. These are Paul's concluding remarks in a very passionate letter to the Galatian church. And as we've seen throughout this series, the main issue involved is circumcision. And so it's fitting that in his last remarks, he picks up this idea of circumcision again. When he does so, you see in verse 11 that he says an emphatic appeal of here's what large letters I'm writing with my own hand. This is not abnormal. Paul actually has done this in many other letters where it seems as if he signs off and writes with his own hand. But here it seems like he's writing a little bit more 
and more strongly and emphatically than in some of his other letters. And so here's what I think his last big idea is that he wants to make sure they get, and he writes with big letters. So think bold print, underlined, underscored, whatever way you can try and communicate it. I think that's what he's trying to do. I think the issue is boasting. Hopefully that's not too difficult for you to see. In verses 12 through 13, there's quite a contrast from the remaining part of the passage. The contrast between the motives of the false teachers, verses 12 and 13. And then the boasting of Paul in the cross of Christ only. So in verses 12 and 13, notice he says that those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order so that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So there's persecution happening in the early church because people are saying that the Old Testament law is not needed anymore, that Jesus fulfilled it, and therefore you can just believe in Jesus alone by faith. And so there's Jewish people that are not happy with that idea, and therefore they're persecuting Christians. And this group of teachers that has come through Galatian churches has said, no, no, you do need to be circumcised. You do need to follow the Old Testament law if you want to receive God's blessings. And so they're forcing, you see in verse 12, they're forcing people to get circumcised. They want to make a good showing, meaning they want to be well thought of. They want other people to speak highly of them. They want applause would be one way to think about it. And so they're not really willing to face the obstacles of death and persecution. They want to run from them and just make people happy. In verse 13, it uses the phrase boasting quite explicitly. It says that they want to boast in the fact that they've convinced others to follow them. It says that he wants, uh, the teachers that is, they want those who are circumcised, they don't keep the law because no one can. Paul's made that point clear in chapter 3. But they desire to have you circumcised, Galatian Christians, so that they may boast in your flesh. So they want to boast in the idea that these people are now obeying their teaching. They've got a following. So not only are they not going to be persecuted by the Judaizers, these people who are demanding circumcision and strict obedience to the Old Testament law, they're going to get applause for that. But then they're also going to get applause and boasting for the fact that people are following them. And then Paul contrasts that quite clearly. Look at verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they're boasting in what they're doing, circumcision namely, obedience to the law. They're boasting in the people that are following them. Paul says, no, 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 only boast in the cross. I'm dead to the rest of the world. I'm crucified by the world. Circumcision means nothing. Why would we boast in circumcision, verse 15? You know, circumcision means nothing. Whether you're circumcised or not circumcised. But only a new creation in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's referring to when he says the new creation, the new creation in someone's heart. And so in verse 17, if you drop down, you'll see Paul's alluding to the idea that if you care about having cut marks on your body, well, I have plenty of them. I have plenty of wounds and cuts. If you want to say that that's what we should boast in, well, I'll give you something to boast about. Look at the body, the marks on my body, the marks of Jesus, meaning that the pain and the suffering and the torture that he's received. And so I think his final remarks are all about boasting, and I hope you can see that clearly in this passage. And so therefore, I want us to meditate on that. I want you to see that there's a good kind of boasting and there's a bad kind of boasting. Normally, I think in our English language, we use boasting only in a negative sense. And today, we're going to see it in a, in a positive sense. So here's what we need to do. We're going to define boasting, we're going to describe boasting, and we're going to see what the destination of our boasting is. Those three points, 
will be the movement we will go through. First, let's define boasting. What does the word boasting even mean? And I don't mean look up your English dictionary. What does the word in the original language that Paul wrote with his own big letters, with his own hand, when he wrote, I'm not going to boast in anything but the cross of Christ. And literally, the word is get its root from the word neck. So if you want a very wooden, literal translation, you start talking about somebody's neck and holding their neck up. Holding something up on your neck, which is what? What do you hold up on your neck? Well, your head. And that's what the word means, to hold your head up. So when you get to the very element, fundamental element of this word, it means to hold your head up high. Not hold your head down, like this. So metaphorically speaking, it's not just talking about the biological, anatomical body parts. Well, I have a neck, and I can hold it up. It's, it's a metaphor, right? If somebody has their arms drooping and their knees sagging and their head down, they're discouraged. They're depressed. Somebody who's got their chest puffed out and their head up high and their chin up, what do we say? They're chipper, they're confident, they're ready to face the day. So that's what the word means. Boasting here means to have your head held up high, to have confidence, to exult in, to rejoice in something, glory in something. Those are different English translations of this word. And so I think right from the start, it'd be helpful for you and I to think just for a moment, what are some ways that people hold their head up high? Like in the world, in your world, in your life, how, what are reasons that we hold our head up high, that we wake up in the morning, that we have passion to get going through our day? Well, for some people, it's our money, right? We mentioned this earlier in the offering. If things go poorly, if I'm facing difficult circumstances, well, I can boast in the fact that I have a lot of money and that will get me through. Some people will be the power they have, the influence over other people. Maybe it's a position that they have in a school or in a job or in the community. Maybe they're a governor or a president. And so they can boast in the fact that they've been elected to have power over everyone else. And so they can have confidence and hold their head up high because of the power they have. There's all sorts of things that people boast in. People boast in the family they come from, the skin color that they have, the ethnicity and culture that they were born into, their caste system. Many people today, especially here in the West, in the United States, we boast in our beauty, in our fitness levels, how many steps we got today. Yeah, I'm fit. I'm in shape. I look good. I have chiseled abs. I have great looks. I have this or that, right? Other people boast in their wisdom. Well, I'm not much of a workout person, but I'm smart. I read books. What school do you go to? How many facts you've memorized? When I was giving this very talk to the students over in Dubai, I made this point and I said, even if you got a scholarship to NYU, now, just for frame of reference, there were about 100 some students at a conference and I was teaching Galatians and we finished with this talk that I'm giving you now. And I got to this point and I thought, yeah, I'll just throw out the idea that even if you got a scholarship to NYU, not knowing that NYU 
pretty much only gives full-ride scholarships to every student that comes in, and that every student that was there, half of them were from NYU, they'd received full-time scholarships, and that they paid for the students to go to the conference that we were hosting. Which is interesting when you think about it, that NYU has a campus in the Middle East and a bunch of Muslim and Hindu and different ethnic background students are coming and they're paying students in their free time on a weekend to go hear me, Pastor Phil, teach them about Galatians, which I just found really interesting. So when I then told them that even if you have a scholarship from NYU, half the group started laughing out loud. I thought it was hilarious that I poked a kind of, you know, half of them were in there from NYU. And so there's a little story from my trip to Dubai, but Many of them could have been boasting in the fact they got scholarships at NYU. They went to this prestigious school. They got accepted. We were told that it's only the elite of the elite that get into that school from all around the world. What about you? What do you boast in? Do you boast in your good works, your morals, the number of times you pray or read the Bible, who you know? Well, I know so-and-so. Insert in famous celebrity politician, sports figure. We're close, and now I have an in at whatever thing you want to be in with. This is what we boast in, isn't it? We boast in the things of this world. We boast in the things that we have. And boasting means to hold your head up high. So why do you? Why do you hold your head up high? And when difficult things start coming your way, when discouraging moments happen in your life, do you ever start to evaluate what am I going to lean on? What, what am I going to help get me through this difficult season? You know, difficulties in our life will often expose what we're truly boasting in. Who our true boast is in. What about you? What is your boast in? What reason do you have to get up the day after day after day? That's question number one. What is the definition of boasting? Let's now look at question two, part two. What is the description of boasting? Originally, this term boasting is a term used in war. It's the word you'd use to get soldiers to charge to almost certain death. So imagine two armies facing one another, big field in front of them. And then you have captains, soldiers, military officers, charging the troops and telling them, let's go, let's charge. That, that's what a boast is. It's the speech that the captain gives before he sends out his soldiers. He says something like, our hands are stronger, our feet are faster, our spears are sharper, our minds are smarter, our army is bigger, let's go, right? Something like that. I mentioned this idea in Dubai, and I said, have you all ever heard of this movie, it's made in America, Braveheart? And they're all like, yes. I'm like, oh, okay. So apparently Middle Easterners watch Braveheart as well, and you may have heard this movie. Uh, have you all heard it? Okay. So maybe less of you, huh? Or you're just shy and sleepy. But in the movie, there's this moment where Braveheart is big army Mel Gibson says, they may take our lives, but they may never take our freedom. And then they charge. That's what a boast is. That, that famous speech in Braveheart. Mel Gibson is charactering William Wallace. And William Wallace is giving us a boast. And this isn't just this idea in the movies. I didn't get this point from the movies. I got this from the Bible, in fact. 
In the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, you'll find out that boasting is this military idea between two soldiers, two armies facing one another, and then the soldiers start boasting. Think Goliath. What is he doing before the army of Israel? He starts boasting and telling them how great and strong he is and that they can never defeat him. Send out your greatest soldier, I'll defeat them. And so he boasts. In Exodus chapter 15, as the people of Israel have just been saved from the army of of, uh, Egypt, he says, our enemies made a boast. They shouted, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But, this is what happened. There was a boast from the enemies of God, the Egyptian armies. They were thinking, we're going to go get them, we're going to destroy them, we're going to gorge them. But God blew with his breath and the sea covered over them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. They had a big boast, but they could not back it up. That's Exodus chapter 15 when they're celebrating the great victory that God gave them through the waters. First Kings chapter 20 is another example of a boast in a military context. Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. And so this is like a little poem. It's a, a little short proverb about boasting in himself and and so you see the context of this phrase is, is, is in the same idea of, of not boasting uh, in your armor or boasting in your own strength. And so all through the Old Testament, there's these examples of boasting, and the description of it is in this military war, set, war setting. A boast is what helps the battle go on. It helps give the soldiers the confidence to charge forward. So all of us in this room, I would argue, you boast in something. And you may not be fighting a military battle, but you charge forward into your next problem, an obstacle, your next day, tomorrow morning, when you wake up. What's going to get you out of bed? You, you got here today, so you're not so depressed and down and discouraged and your head hanging so low because you're here. You had enough courage and confidence and strength to get up this morning. Why? What's the source of that strength? What are you boasting in? What are you charging forward day after day, keeping your head held up high? This is what boasting is about. And so now we need to conclude and figure out where our boasting, the source of our strength, should ultimately come from. If that's what a boast is, we see clearly in verses 12 through 13 that the boast should not be in our flesh. It should not be in things that we have done. It should not be in our accomplishments. But we see the answer in Galatians 6, verse 14, that it should be in the cross of Christ. The Old Testament answer would be what you heard read earlier in the service, Jeremiah chapter 9. Let the wise man boast, not boast in his wisdom, nor the mighty man boast in his might. Don't let the rich man boast in his riches. But him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and understands the Lord. Or in Psalm 44, 7 and 8. God, you have saved us from our enemies. You have put to shame those who hate us. And so in God we boast all day long and we give thanks to your name forever. In the Old Testament, God was the destination and the subject of the boasting. But do you see in the New Testament, Paul makes it more explicit. 
It's not just God in general. It is the cross in particular. So one of the things you need to realize is that in the Bible, some things are made generally clear, like boasting should be in God. That's generally clear in the Old Testament. But then you get these glasses that you put on when you start reading the New Testament, and they make things crystal clear. It's not just boasting in God in general. It is boasting in the cross of Jesus in particular. If you would like to know what it means to be a true follower of God, a true Christian, you need to understand that you should have your confidence and hold your head up high and charge forward because of the cross. But as you and I hear that, as I tell you that's the answer, the answer for you to the passion that fuels you every day should be the cross of Jesus, my guess is most of you are like, yeah, that sounds about right. Most of you in this room have been in church before. You've maybe even heard this passage before. But I want you to imagine hearing it for the first time when these people in Galatia heard this. Far be it that we would boast in anything except, and they're expecting, knowing the Lord. Boast in God. And he says the cross. Do you realize how crazy that would have sounded? Because the reason why that doesn't sound crazy to you and to me isn't just because of your familiarity with it. The other reason is because you and I, we look around, and in our world today, you see crosses all over the place. You see crosses hanging from people's necks as necklace and jewelry. You see crosses in people's homes as decorations. You see crosses in churches as a symbol of what the church is about and what we're centered around. You heard me say at the start of this service, we're going to be a cross-centered church. We've made the cross a symbol of hope and of life. And therefore, we have taken what was something terrible and awful, and we have said we're going to make our boast in something that's life-giving. But back then, that's not what it was. Back then, they're saying, let's boast in the electric chair. And everybody gets silent. Because that's what it would have sounded like. Uh, imagine you all wearing guns around your neck for a necklace and jewelry. Or, or maybe you have a picture of a firing squad at your dinner table. And somebody comes over to your house and you sit down and you're about to eat a meal together and you look up and you're like, okay, time to go. See ya. I realize I had an appointment. It's strange, isn't it? It's strange to think about the symbol for you and for me that seems so common associated with Christianity. It was not the symbol associated with Christianity for hundreds and hundreds of years later. Until this terrible death by the cross was far out of people's minds and not practices commonly. The earliest symbol that Christians had was actually an anchor. Like on a boat, an anchor. From Galatians, chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 6. That there's an anchor into heaven and we are tethered to heaven because of Christ breaking through the heavenly place. But Christians were told in the very early centuries, even when the cross was a symbol of execution in the most horrific kind, they were told to boast in the cross. Do you realize not even Roman citizens convicted of the most heinous crimes were killed on the cross. And this is supposed to be your source of confidence and strength. In fact, Paul writes it with his large letters and he says it with the most strong words he could. It's the most negative way you could say something in the Greek language. He says, may it never be. No possible way should we ever, ever boast except in the cross of Christ. 
He's stating this emphatically by the way he writes it and the letters he's using. He's making it personal. In the summer of 2000, one of the largest Christian gatherings happened in Texas. It was called Passion One Day. And a man named John Piper, who was not well known at this point, many of you have heard of his name 17 years later, but at this point, he was just a friend of a guy named Louis Giglio, and he was asked to speak on the glory of the cross, and he chose this text, Galatians 6.14. And he said some of the words that I think have profoundly changed my life as a college student, even though I was not there at that event in 2000. It was in my college days that I was given a book called Don't Waste Your Life, and a lot of that book by John Piper was based on this talk that he gave in this large, large event of over a hundred some thousand people in a big field in Texas. And Piper preaches on this day, one day, Passion One Day, 2000. And he, he says in his introduction, you know, you don't have to know a lot of things to make a difference with your life. If you want to make your life count and not waste it, then you don't have to know a lot of things. You only have to know one thing that's worth living and dying for. And he said it's the cross, Galatians 6, 14. And in that message, John Piper asked what I have been asking all week. And so I was thankful to go back and remember that he gave the answer. The cross, only the cross. Don't boast in anything else except the cross. Live and die by the cross. That's it. Well, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 4, Paul talks about boasting in something else. The very same chapter that we get, don't boast in anything except the cross, look at Galatians 6, 4. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And so in this message, John Piper asked the question I had, is this true? Do we only boast in the cross? Does Paul only boast in the cross? In fact, you read the rest of Paul's letters, you find in Romans chapter 5, he says we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in our tribulations because they produce hope. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses. 1 Thessalonians two nineteen, Who is our hope, our joy, our crown? Is it not you that we boast in? Are you seeing what's going on here? Does it just seem to me that Paul is double talking here? Is it only boast in the cross or do we boast in our weaknesses? Do we boast in other people? Do we boast even in ourselves? What, what is going on here? Does this guy not know how to write? I think the answer that John Piper gives is a good one. It is not double talk. There's a profound reason why we should say that all boasting in anything in this side of eternity is ultimately a boasting in the cross. And so this is what Piper said. For the Christian, all other boasting should be ultimately a boasting in the cross. All other exaltation in anything else 
is ultimately an exaltation in the cross. If you exalt in the hope of glory, then it is an exalting in the cross of Christ. If you boast in tribulation, it is because tribulation works hope, and you should then ultimately boasting in the cross of Christ if you boast in your weaknesses or in other people. You're ultimately boasting in the cross of Christ. Why is this? Because all of us who are sinners should know that every good thing, indeed every bad thing that God turns for good, all of it was obtained for us by the cross of Christ. Apart from the cross, all we get is God's judgment. Apart from the cross, there is only condemnation. Therefore, everything that you can enjoy as a Christian is owing to the ultimate reason, the death of Christ on a cross. Therefore, all boasting in anything else is ultimately a boasting that comes from the cross. And then he concludes, one of the great reasons why many of us are not as cross-centered and Christ-saturated as we should be is because we have not realized that everything we have, every good thing, And every bad thing turned for good was purchased by the death of Christ for us on the cross. We take our breath day in and day out. We have health and friends and family and we take it for granted. We think it is ours by right, but the fact is it is not ours by right. It was purchased on the cross. Are you all hearing what Piper was saying? The reason why Paul can conclude his letter And say, only boast in the cross of Christ is because the cross purchased for us everything that you could possibly boast in. So there's nothing that you can boast in that isn't ultimately attached to the cross. That's why he can emphatically conclude the letter the way he does. So let's conclude this sermon series by reviewing what in fact Paul has taught us about salvation. And all the blessings that come from the cross. So if you would, turn in your Bibles. I want you to look at the very first page of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Why is boasting in the cross the ultimate boast? Because look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins and delivered us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Do you want to boast in the idea that you have been delivered from the present evil age? Well, boasting in that is ultimately a boast in the cross. If you want to turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, do you see what chapter 2, verse 16 says? Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order that to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Any of you would like to say, I can boast that my standing before God, my justification, as Dustin explained last week, my joy comes from being made right with God. Well, that's ultimately because of what Jesus did on the cross to make you right with God. Or how about verse 19 of chapter 2? For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. And then in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Did any of you like to boast in the idea or glory and rejoice in the idea that you have a new identity in Jesus Christ? Does that sound good? Yeah, I'm down for that. Well, if you do, 
That's attached to the cross. It is because Christ was crucified and our union with Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection is the reason that you can boast in a new identity, a new, a new reality, a new creation. How about the love of Jesus he mentions here in verse 20? Who loved me and gave himself for me. Any of you want to boast that God loves you? That you're confident this morning? You can wake up tomorrow morning and say, God still loves me, even no matter what happens the rest of today, you know? Would you like to have the confidence to hold your head up high and charge forward in tomorrow to know without any doubts that God loves you? Would that be good? That comes from the cross. You don't get the love of Jesus any other way than knowing that he loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. Or how about the blessings of Abraham? Any of you who are not Jews by birth think it's great that the, the privileged family of Abraham, the inheritance of God's promises to Abraham are now given to all nations all over the whole earth. Does that sound good? We'll look at Galatians 3, verse 14. He says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Because of Christ Jesus' death on a cross, the blessings now come to all nations, all Gentiles. Or how about the promised Holy Spirit, verse 14 continues, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Do you guys remember a couple weeks ago we talked about how the Holy Spirit is God's plan to change people and get rid of evil in communities called churches. The Holy Spirit is God's personal, invisible presence in your life to slowly transform you from one degree of glory to another. Does that sound good? Does that sound something that you can wake up tomorrow morning and have confidence in to face obstacles? Well, if you're excited about the Holy Spirit, it's because it was purchased on the cross. Or how about your adoption? Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Look how clearly the cross is tied to the adoption of being a son and daughter. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born under the woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if then a son than an heir through God. The adoption into God's family so that you can say, I am a child of God, is purchased for you in the cross. Galatians 5.1, freedom in Christ. For freedom Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.5, 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait the hope of righteousness. That's a brief survey of every sweet spiritual blessing that I could think of, at least, from just Galatians alone. And you can't make any sense of it unless God sends his son, born under the woman, born under the law, and takes on all of the curse of sin on the cross. My friends, we glory in the cross because it is the cross who gives us any good thing. And it is the cross who takes every bad thing and turns it for good. This is how you charge forward into tomorrow's obstacles or whatever you have the rest of this day. This is how you hold your head up high. This is what you should boast in. Do you have anything better to boast in? 
If, you, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me help you understand what it means to be a Christian. It is to boast in, to hold your head up high and have confidence moving forward because you know that Jesus Christ is the one true God who has taken on sin and he has defeated sin and death. It's like having those armies on the two sides and you're saying, let's charge forward. Except in this case, the charge and the boast is, guys, we're charging forward, but the the battle's already been won. In fact, Jesus already did it on the cross. How much more confident would you be charging forward if you knew that they were already dead on the other side? Yeah, let's go get them. Oh, they're actually all dead. (laughs) Do you see how this, this is a game changer? We don't boast in our accomplishments. We don't boast in how many times you come to church. We don't boast in how many times you read the Bible or pray. We don't boast in our works. We don't boast in our flesh. We boast only in the fact that Christ accomplished for us the victory, the deliverance, the adoption, the justification, all of that gospel package on the cross. Therefore, as a church, we should always glory in, sing about, pray, be thankful for the cross, take the Lord's Supper, and never get tired of doing it week in and week out. It's the cross. The cross offers us everything that we could ever want or ever need. We die to the world when we die with Christ on the cross. So I began this message by giving you a story of John Huss, the goose. And how the goose stood before the face of death. And with great boldness and great confidence, he said, I will gladly die. I want to tell you one final story in the Reformation as you celebrate not just Halloween, hopefully, but the many men who gave their lives to the word of God. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley in 1555. So this is shortly after Martin Luther's 95 thesis on October 31st, 1517. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were two preachers in England who were convicted for teaching the Bible in a way that many Catholics thought was inappropriate. And they were called heretics, and they said that if you keep teaching these things, you'll be killed. And so they were burned together back to back at the end of a street in Oxford in front of all these people in England. Unfortunately for Nicholas Ridley, the wood was not placed very well around his feet, so he suffered quite terribly for quite a while before he died. His legs started burning first before it even touched the rest of his body. It was such a horrific sight that it brought many in the crowd to tears, and from that point on, they stopped doing public executions because they were realizing it was not working. It was not working to start making the people fear. Instead, they were getting all the more curious as to why these men so boldly died in such horrific circumstances. And it was Hugh Latimer, the 80-year-old pastor, who was the first to die. And here were his words as he boasted through the flames. He said to Nicholas Ridley, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. Today, this day, we will light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust will never be put out. 
I don't know about you, but when I read stories like this, I think, I don't think I would ever say something like that. I think I'd be scared. I think I would be a wimp. Play the man as you're getting burned to the stake. We're going to be a candle today that will light up the rest of England. And so it was. The rest of England was lit up, not with more dead bodies, although there were more dead bodies. The rest of England was lit up with the word of God. And people were starting to understand for the first time in their lives that it is by God's grace and grace alone that people should boast in and glory in, rejoice in, and they came to faith. So my friend, I ask you, even if you're not being asked to die at the stakes and burn to death for God's word. Can you live with these ideas, these truths? Can you boast in the cross in your life now? So many have done these very boasts with these words on their lips as they died. I pray that God would give us that strength and grace to do that as we live now. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I want to give you thanks for your word in Galatians and the several weeks that we've been able to, as a church, come gather weekly around it. I pray that we will all be thankful for the cross. We will glory in the cross. I pray that we'd be all the more thankful that every gift we have is ultimately attached to the cross. I pray that there's anyone here today that doesn't understand how Christians have confidence and joy and wake up every morning. I pray that each of us We'd be given strength because of the work of Christ and not our works. As we sang just a moment ago, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Naked we come to you for dress. Thank you, God, for clothing us in your righteousness. We give you thanks this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.